Good evening. My name is Arne Westard. I'm the director of LSC Ideas, which is a center I started together with my dear friend and colleague, Professor Mick Cox, uh, almost exactly five years ago. Five years ago this month. And it's a center that deals, as most of you will know, with international affairs written large, with diplomacy and strategy, and tries to put all of this into various perspectives, perhaps the most important of which is history. And it's history we are here to celebrate tonight, to welcome uh, Professor Tim Snyder as the new Philippe Roman Chair in History and International Affairs in, in LSE Ideas. And it's a great pleasure to have you on board for that, for that position, Tim. Because uh, Tim follows a quite distinguished group of um, historians and international affairs experts in the Philippe Roman Chair. I don't think really, and I'm not saying this to brag too much, but I, don't, I can't really think of any other university that in its main visiting position for history and international affairs have had a group quite like Tim and his predecessors. So let me just name them briefly. Paul Kennedy, uh, Tim's colleague at Yale, was the first inaugural Philippe Roman professor, followed by Professor Chen Jen, Professor Jill Kepel, Professor Neil Ferguson, Professor Ramachandra Guha, and last year, <coughs> Professor Anne Applebaum, who just stepped down. It's quite a remarkable group of people that we've had on board. All of them have one main quality in common, that they combine the study of history and international affairs with broad public engagement. They are interested in what people think and how people think about the matters that they write about and the matters that they research. That's the main reason why they've been selected for this chair. But we have also been remarkably lucky in the sense that no one who so far has been invited to fill this chair has turned us down. Some of that is thanks to the generosity of uh, Mr. Emmanuel Roman, who is the one who set up this chair. Indeed, Manny, was, who, who provided the funding for the chair, was also one of those who started thinking about it, probably before he even contacted us at LSE about it. And his contribution to this should be noted tonight. He set up the chair in memory of his father, Philippe Roman, but he first, of, first and foremost set it up because he's one of those uh, people in the financial sector who really cares very deeply about the academic study of history and international affairs. And he's someone, I think, who should be congratulated not just for his generosity to LSE, but also for the engagement that he's had with regard to this chair throughout the period in which he has sponsored it. <coughs> now tonight's lecturer, uh, Professor Timothy Snyder, uh, is among the most distinguished historians working on the first and the middle part of the 20th century. He received his doctorate from the University of Oxford in 1997, and he joined the faculty at Yale University in 2001. Um, he has a number of key monographs. I mean, I, I'm going to mention these. I don't usually do this, but I'll do it for Tim because all of them are really significant. A number of, of key monographs in terms of linking uh, various parts of the early history of the 20th century. Nationalism, Marxism, and modern Central Europe from 1998. The reconstruction of nations, Poland, Ukraine, Lithuania, Belarus. Uh, 1569 to 1999 from 2003. Sketches from a Secret War, a Polish artist's mission to liberate Soviet U Ukraine from 2005. 
And one of the books that intrigued me the most, The Red Prince, The Secret Lives of Habsburg Archduke from 2009, a biography of Wilhelm von Habsburg. Um, in 2010, he published what is uh, by far his best-known book, Bloodlands, Europe between Hitler and Stalin, which is a remarkable history of Nazi and Soviet mass killing on the lands between Berlin and Moscow. It's a very controversial book. It's a book that it's well worth reading, uh, not pr primarily because of controversy, but because of the deep insights that it provides in some of the worst aspects of early 20th century history and how these are intertwined. Therefore, the title, Bloodlands. More recently, um, Tim helped uh, my friend and his, Tony Judd, to uh, put together a thematic history of political ideas and intellectuals in politics. So it was towards the end of Tony's life. The book is called Thinking the 20th Century and was published in the beginning of 2000 and 2012. And Tim is now working on a project which his lectures here at LSE will be connected to about the Holocaust in a global setting uh, as a part of global history. Now, Tim Snyder is the kind of historian that I most admire. He is someone who deals with scholarship as a public affair. And his association with Tony Yott, of course, is a connection into that. I think it's very important to try to do that. I mean, not just for historians, but for people who try to think through various parts of human existence within academia. If we are not able to do that, if you're not able to engage uh, on a broad scale with people outside of academia, with other people who have interests in the kind of things we are preoccupied with, I think much of the scholarship that we do, however good we are, uh, will not reap the benefits that we are hoping for. So in that sense, Professor Timothy Snyder is the ideal Philippe Roman professor for us here at LSE. So LSE, give a real LSE welcome to Professor Timothy Snyder. Thank you very much for those kind words. It's, it's hard to think of a better place to try to think about global history than here, and it's hard to think of someone in whose company one would rather be trying to do such a thing than in Professor Westad's. So thank you for the kind words. Thank you for the welcome. What I want to do today is give what is going to be easily the most intellectual and theoretical of these four lectures. As we, as we move forward, we will be hitting upon topics that we will all find familiar and the contemporary resonances of which we will all find easy to recognize. Marxism, uh, mass murder in Eastern Europe, the Holocaust. All of these lectures will be about origins and those final three will go from origins to the contemporary rather easily in my text and in your minds. The task that I'm setting for me and for us today is a bit different. What I'd like to do is to try to explain, or at least take a step towards explaining, what I take to be a really hard question that we don't see as a hard question. And that is, why do we have the nations that we have? 
So let's assume that we know why we have nations, which itself is a rather hard question. Why do we have the particular ones that we happen to have? Now, I set this out as a theoretical question, and I, it's, it's very possible that I may make some theoretical arguments along the way. But perhaps if you bear with me, we may come back around to the global significance um, and the public affairs, which Professor Rustad mentioned towards the end. Uh, at any event, I think at the end of the day, the question, why do we have the nations that we have, is not just a question of the 19th and 20th centuries, but it remains a question for the 21st century, because we still don't know yet which nations we are going to have. Some of them are still very much in the making. On the 18th of August 1948, a Ukrainian colonel lay dead on a cold slab in a prison hospital in Kiev, what was then the capital of Soviet Ukraine. There was nothing particularly unusual about these circumstances in the time, in the place. At the time and in the place, in the 1947, 1948, in Soviet Ukraine, there was a civil war, a rather massive civil war, raging between Ukrainian nationalists, some of them splendidly organized, and Soviet power. The previous four years, from the end of the war through the early Cold War, had seen in Western Ukraine massive ethnic, ethnic, ethnic cleansings, massive pacifications on both sides, tens of thousands of mortal casualties, if not low hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands of deportations. Hundreds of thousands of the family members of Ukrainian nationalists were in Siberia. Tens of thousands had been killed, a similar number interrogated. Many of them, like this Ukrainian colonel, were interrogated and died after signing their names in Ukrainian to interrogation protocols in Russian. This is a moment that will be familiar to any of you who have read Professor Westad's work or are familiar with the history of the Cold War. This is a turning point where the anxiety of a great war, from the Soviet point of view, and the anxiety of a great war which was nearly lost, meets the anxiety of a Cold War which is just beginning. And this particular, Ukrainian, this particular Ukrainian colonel had connections with both of these events. He had spent the Second World War in Vienna, a rather interesting place to spend it, a center of intrigue and espionage, a, a major European capital in a Europe whose future had not yet taken shape. As you'll know, Vienna was liberated by the Red Army, but much of the rest of Austria was liberated by the Western powers, and the occupation regime of the city itself and of the country was a four-power one. This was the famous moment right after the war of four men in a jeep, uh, memorialized by Graham Greene in that remarkable screenplay for the third man. At the end of the war, this particular Ukrainian colonel in Vienna had put French military intelligence in touch with Ukrainian nationalists who were at work in the Soviet Union. And it was for this courage that he paid. One day in August 1946, he tried to make his way to the Zudbanhof, no doubt trying to escape. He was met there by members of Smersh, the special Soviet counterespionage branch, taken in armored personnel carrier to an airport and flown to Kiev in Soviet Ukraine. There he was tortured and there he died. So this may seem like a fairly straightforward history. Despite what I've said before, this seems to have everything to do with great powers, familiar themes of history. What's theoretical about all of this? At most, you might find here a bit of romantic pathos. Here you have a rather straightforward example of a man who died for his country. Right? All right. 
1946 to 1948, the three years that I've spent a moment talking about, the Ukrainian colonel had an older brother, and the older brother was also in trouble with communism. His older brother was also quite courageous. His older brother was also in his way very principled. He was a decorated officer from, from several wars. His older brother, though, was not a Ukrainian officer. His older brother was a Polish officer. His older brother at the end of the Second World War, which he had spent in German concentration camps, returned not to Ukraine, but to Poland. He returned to Poland, by the way, to press a very important property claim, one which I'm sure has touched the lives of some of you, to the family brewery at Zhivyets. So while his younger brother was being tortured in Kiev, the older brother was visiting officials of the new Polish communist regime, trying to establish the family claim to this brewery and the property around it. His children had a certain amount of trouble adapting to the new regime that they found. The daughter of the Polish colonel, so the niece of the Ukrainian colonel, was trying to register for medical school. She was confronted by a questionnaire, as people were in those times and those places at the beginning of the communist regime and throughout the communist regime. In the questionnaire, she had to define her social origin. And there were three correct answers or three possible answers. Intelligentsia, peasantry, working class. This was difficult for this, for this young woman. and She hesitated before she crossed out all the possibilities and wrote down instead something else. She wrote Habsburg. <laughs> and this was true. Uh, the Ukrainian colonel Wilhelm, whom Professor Vestad was kind enough to mention, and the Polish colonel Karl were indeed Habsburg archdukes. They were veterans of the Austro-Hungarian army. They were sons of an Austrian admiral. They were grandsons of the field marshal of the Austro-Hungarian army. They were great-grandsons of Archduke Albrecht, who some of you will know was the victor over Napoleon at Aspern. They were the great-great-grandsons of Emperor Leopold and the great-great-great-grandsons of Empress Maria Theresia herself. So what made these two men what they were? What made them national? What made them willing to risk their lives for their nation? Um, and what made them of different nations? The older brother, by the way, had risked his life too in circumstances which might even be more interesting than the younger brother. When the Germans arrived in Zhivyets, they, they pointed out to Karl that he was, from their point of view, racially German, right? He belonged to the Habsburg family, which from their point of view was an unmistakably German family, and they invited him to become a Volksdeutsch of the first category. He refused that invitation, and it was for that reason that he was sent to a concentration camp. And he explicitly said, the reason I'm refusing this, and he's quite, quite eloquent about this actually, is that nationality is not a matter of blood. Nationality is a matter of personal commitment. For that, he spent four years in a camp. Um, so how did these men whose nationality can't really be denied, both of them suffered quite heavily for it, how did these men become national? How did they become what they were? Now, one way to answer this question, and this is how I'm going to begin, is by telling a bit of their story. Uh, and it's a very special story, of course. We, we can't all answer questionnaires with Habsburg. Um, 
Is there anyone here who can, by the way? I kind of like to, <laughs> I kind of like to know that audience. I once, I once gave a talk about the Red Prince, um, the, the book about these Habsburgs in Vienna. And the, we had a full house. And the, t the way I could tell who the Habsburgs were, were they were the ones who were smoking inside. <laughs> one, of, one of their friends had tipped me off, but this is how you can tell. Um, and, it, and, and, it was, and that audience was about one quarter Habsburg. Um, <laughs> and they were tough. OK. so. One way to begin this is by telling the story of this very special family. And it was a special family. The father of these two men, um, Archduke Karl Stefan, raised the family on an island, which you can now visit as a Croatian tourist destination, Loshin. Um, he raised them, interestingly enough, to become kings, or in the cases, cases of the girls, princesses or queens of Poland. And he married off two of the girls to Polish princes, to, to Polish princes, that is, to great Polish nobles. Now, this might seem like some sort of fantasy, right? You go to an island, um, you plant it with all kinds of exotic plants that you gather as you, as you, as you, as you sail around the world, and you raise your children to, become, to belong to a nationality with which you personally have nothing to do, and which is also rather far away, right? An island off Croatia is not actually that close to Poland, no matter how ambitious your understanding of Polish geography <laughs> might happen to be. So at first, it seems like one of these eccentric, you know, one of these eccentric things that the Habsburgs in our Western imagination do, one of these crazy schemes, which of course couldn't come to a good end. In fact, it was a very canny piece of strategic thinking. And if we're able to pull away some of our own, um, pardon me the expression, but some of our own Western biases about what was happening in Central Europe, this starts to come clear. The mainstream of history in the 19th century in Europe was not, didn't have much to do with the French Revolution and republics, which is how we like to think about it. The mainstream of, of history, political history, in Central and Eastern Europe the 19th century was the national monarchy. Uh, an apparent, from our point of view, paradox, because a national, national is modern, a monarchy is archaic, how can they go together? But the Serbian kingdom was a national monarchy, the Greek kingdom is a national monarchy, Romania, Bulgaria, national monarchies, which would all be marginal and Balkan, I suppose, except that it's that Balkan pattern which Italy then follows and Germany then follows, right? Also forming national monarchies, also forming populist monarchical regimes which combine elements of mass participation with very traditional, form, with very traditional forms of constitutionalism, right? That is in fact the mainstream. Um, the French Revolution is marginal and arguably, it, my whole view by the way is that it remains so. Um, this is another one of my unwritten books. But that it's actually, the way to understand Europe is actually from Serbia outward rather than from <laughs> France outward. And you have to admit that at this particular moment in European history, well, okay, you see where I, I would go with this. Um, so, but the point is that he was actually observing events as they were at the time. And what he was banking on, and this wasn't crazy, was that there would be f future national unifications. And the ones that he expected were also not quite, and we're not wrong, he expected there would be a Yugoslav unification, which turned out to be correct, and he expected that there would be a Polish unification, which also turned out to be correct. What he, what he missed, what he didn't expect, was that these would be um, after a war, which would legitimate republics. He expected that there would be further monarchies. And there he was wrong about Poland. But the point is that he was in the mainstream of history when he made these plans. Now, and, and from the point of view of an Austrian archduke, whether that, and this is the other reason why it's so clever, if Austria collapses, which was possible, of course, you're going to need more kingdoms. 
if Austria expands, which is the other possibility, you're also going to need more kingdoms. Um, so either way, it seemed like this plan was going to work. So the first several children accepted this plan. Wilhelm was the youngest, and Wilhelm naturally rebelled. He rebelled because he loved his older sisters, and they kept marrying these extremely annoying, pompous Polish aristocrats. He rebelled because he was the youngest. There was something slightly different about him. He was rebelling against his father. So he did what you do when you're, when you're a Polish rebel. He became Ukrainian, not the first <laughs> and, 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 and not the last, um, as, as I'm going to try to demonstrate. He literally ran away from home found Ukrainians, um, fell in love with them. Uh, while the police of the Habsburg monarchy searched the entire state trying to find him, he was up a hill with, um, with some Ukrainians learning their language. But that Habsburg monarchy, again, not quite so mad, bad, and unfit to rule as we tend to think about it, actually was able to incorporate this passion of his in a rather interesting way. There was a shortage of Ukrainian-speaking officers in the Habsburg military. Wilhelm became a young boy um, with aristocratic credentials who spoke Ukrainian. Therefore, when he attended the military academy, as his brothers did, as everyone of this sort did, he was assigned afterwards to a Ukrainian unit. Why? The expectation is there's going to be some kind of war with Russia. Any war with Russia is going to take place in Ukrainian-speaking territories, and therefore we could use some more officers, which is in fact exactly what happened. So during the First World War, Wilhelm takes part um, in, 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 the, in the Habsburg army. Um, in, the, in, the, in the glory days of the, the victories of the Central Powers in 1917-1918, he finds himself in an episode which is so Robin Hood-like it's almost impossible to imagine. He finds himself deep in the heart of Ukraine, deep in the heart of what had been the Cossack territories of historical Ukraine, rallying support for his own cause to become king of Ukraine. And he was very, po the thing is he was very popular. This mixture of monarchy and populism, which is not exactly alien to this society, right? <laughs> this mixture of monarchy and populism worked extremely well in Ukraine. The idea that there was someone who was on the one hand a prince, but who at the same time uh, cared about the common people and spoke their language was very popular. And by the way, he was called the Red Prince because he was thought to be so far to the left, right? Because he was thought to be a populist or a socialist of some kind. That's why he was the Red Prince. So he, he has this moment of glory, but of course the dream of Ukrainian statehood falls apart. Um, and his brothers uh, join the Polish state, and the two of them end up, you can see where this is going to go, they end up on opposite sides of armies fighting for Polish and Ukrainian statehood. Their father um, manages, to get, uh, manages to keep the brewery. He doesn't become king of Poland, his sons don't either. He does become the king of Polish beer. The Polish children live very well in interwar Poland, and Wilhelm, the Ukrainian one, finds himself in French exile. Now, what he does in French exile need not detain us, but, but it, it should. Um, he, in Parisian exile, he does two very interesting things simultaneously. On the one hand, he maintains extremely good relations with Ukrainian emigres, most of them working class, right? most of them relatively simple people. He remains popular with them. On the other hand, um, at the same time, he indulges I don't even that, that's such a straightforward behavior now. I don't even indulge the right word, but he's, he goes out dressed in women's clothing with men on a fairly regular basis um, and, and is observed doing so by the police and is observed doing so by his neighbors. Um, and this is, in, you know, it's, it's recorded. So this is, this is a kind of, and eventually he gets himself involved in a scandal 
which I really can't explain, but which involves his being blackmailed by the woman who claimed to be his girlfriend and having to leave France, and thereby along the way destroying chances for a Habsburg restoration um, <laughs> with which he was directly involved at the time. It was a big embarrassment for the Habsburgs who are still with us, hence the difficulty of talking to them about these things. Now, I've taken you this far into this story, and you may be asking, what can this really tell us about nationality, about Ukraine? Um, isn't this just a story about people who, when they're asked about their social class, can say Habsburg? I want to try to answer that question in the negative. I want to try to assert that this case is actually much more typical um, than it might seem at first glance. And the way I want to do this is what I take to be a difficult way. That is, look at, look at the other people in Wilhelm's story and see what we can learn about them. Now, Wilhelm, and I'm afraid this is the part of the lecture where I'm going to throw at you a bunch of East European names, um, right? And, I'm, and you don't, the, the point, some of them are going to resonate with some of you. None of them will resonate with all of you. But the, what I'm, the, the effort is not to, make, to put you awash in ethnicity. On the contrary, the effort is to, uh, is to make you see these people as individual personalities. So Wilhelm was the protege of a great Ukrainian churchman to whom we're going to return at the end, whose name was Andrei Sheptitsky. Andrei Sheptitsky essentially made Wilhelm Ukrainian. But Sheptitsky himself was born in a Polish aristocratic family. When Wilhelm became Ukrainian and wanted to talk to Ukrainian parliamentarians in the Austrian parliament, the person who mediated for him was someone called Mykola Vasilko, who was also from a uh, noble family which was not Ukrainian, which was in fact Romanian. So one could go on in this way with Austria, and perhaps you wouldn't be surprised. After all, Galicia and Austria are known to be these kind of cauldrons of nationality with unpredictable ethnic fecundity. Um, what about the rest of Ukraine? What about the part of Ukraine which was part of the, the Russian Empire, the part which people call Eastern and Central Ukraine? Even there, if you just glance at Wilhelm's life, you find examples of the same sort. So when he was trying to rise to power in 1918, he had, a, he had a brother officer who actually knew something about military affairs, someone who had been a colonel in the Russian Imperial Army, a man who in the Russian Imperial Army had called himself Petrov. But then once the Ukrainian Revolution came to be coming, he called himself Petriv and, and chose Ukraine. Wilhelm, as a Ukrainian monarchist, naturally had enemies among Ukrainian monarchists. I mean, Ukrainian monarchism is something which is so good, you can't possibly expect to be there all by yourself. Mm -hmm. right? So he had an enemy in Ukrainian monarchism, and this man was a, f a very interesting political philosopher called Vyacheslav Lipinski. Vyacheslav Lipinski believed that there should be Ukrainian monarchy, but it should rise from the Ukrainian soil, mm -hmm. unlike Wilhelm. Right? The irony of this being that Lipinski himself was a Polish aristocrat. And, and, and this, this goes on. It goes on through the Russian Revolution. It goes through all these transformations at the time. So for example, the foreign minister of the Ukrainian state, soon to be in exile, was a man called Alexander Shulgin. He was the nephew of a famous Russian nationalist called Shulgin. Um, one of the creators of Soviet Ukrainian literature was a man called uh, Yuri Smolich. His brother was Igor Smolich, who was Russian, who was conservative, who was a monarchist, and who was one of the founders of German historiography of the Russian church. Um, now, you might think this all has to do with being a Slav. This has to do with this sort of some kind of unformed Slavic-ness. Um, or maybe it has to do with being a Christian. After all, I've stayed with the Slavs and the Christians so far. So let me give you one more example before we move on. The most prominent Ukrainian feminist of all time, uh, an indefatigable and rather impressive woman, 
was called Milena Rudnitska. She was one of a family which was known as the Ukrainian Group of Five, which did all the things which nationalists are supposed to do in the early 20th century. You know, you, you make maps, you write, you, you make maps, you write poems, you serve in parliament. Um, every set you write in historical novels, they, they sort of divided up the traditional five tasks and each of them did one of them. And she was the parliamentarian um, in the 1920s and 1930s, this was. Oh, one of them wrote operas. Shouldn't forget national operas. You can't have a respectable revival without opera. Um, so the interesting thing about the Ukrainian group of five is that um, they were raised by a woman uh, who didn't speak Ukrainian, whose maiden name was Olga Spiegel, and whose mother tongue was Yiddish. So, and then, to put it one more generation forward, Milena's son was Ivan Lurnitsky, who was the founder of modern Ukrainian historiography. Uh, he immigrated to Canada, where he essentially is responsible for all of, the, all of Ukrainian studies in, in North America. Um, he was confident enough that no one would know that he was halakhically Jewish, that he studied in Berlin in 1942 and got away with it. <coughs> The great rival of Rudnitsky, by the way, among historians of Ukraine, the founders of Ukrainian historiography, is, is the populist, a man called Mikhailo Hrushevsky. Mikhailo Hrushevsky's um, father, no, Mikhailo Hrushevsky's doctor father and his mother were both Polish. Okay, so in this indirect way, mostly by mentioning people who actually were involved in the little story that I told you at the beginning, I've mentioned many of the very important activists of the Ukrainian cause. Um, the ideologues, the poets, the warriors, the churchmen, the writers, the feminists, the historians. It's quite hard to imagine the Ukrainian nation as we have it without these individual people. You couldn't in fact write a Ukrainian national history without these people and in some cases these are the people who wrote Ukrainian national history. At the same time it's also very hard to imagine that a, a nation arose in the way that I'm describing, because national history itself seems to eliminate the possibility that people would come in from the sides or that people would make choices. So we find ourselves in a kind of contradiction of metaphor. When we think of nations, we think of fatherlands or motherlands. You belong to a father, you belong to a mother. It's a very straightforward relationship, at least genealogically. It's very straightforward. It's a simple, it's a very simple line. And yet, if you, if you think about an actual family or think about an actual family history, it becomes much more complicated. The actual family history of the people who built these metaphorical fatherlands and motherlands was extraordinarily complicated. In other words, if you look hard at families, as I've only begun to do, just scratch the surface, you see not the solidity of the metaphor of a motherland or a fatherland, but you see instead contingency and possibility and choice and strange and unpredictable motivation. Now, one other thing you might think is that I'm just talking about Ukraine. And I won't, I won't disguise that Ukraine is very much on my mind, and I'll return at the end to why that might be at this particular moment in history. But I will claim that this is not just true of Ukraine. It's true of every nation that I know anything about in Eastern Europe. In other words, if you take a step back and think about this, all the places which following a famous distinction we're used to thinking of as having ethnic nations, as opposed to civic nations, all of these places were actually populated when their national leadership was formed by people who came from other ethnicities, right? All of them. Um, Hungary, right? Let me start with the ones that are obscure because the languages are hard and therefore it's easier for them to hide. Um, Hungary and Lithuania. Hungary. The author of the first Hungarian language bestseller, I'm going to spare you the names now, but the author of the first Hungarian language bestseller, Slovak. 
Um, the great leader of 1848, Kashut, uh, father was Saxon. The revolutionary poet, Petofi, his, his, he was Slovak. Um, the great chauvinist of the early 20th century, Rakoshi, uh, German. Uh, the, pe- the great peasant populist writer, Hetzig, German. The nationalist bishop, Slovak, Prohasko. Then, even during the 30s and 40s, so the figures who were notorious in right-wing Hungarian politics, um, Gumbers, who was the prime minister from 32 to 36, one of the founders of the New Right. One side Armenian, one side Swabian. Um, Stoyai, the prime minister appointed at Hitler's demand in March of 1944, responsible for the initial deportation of Jews. Uh, Croatian. Um, his successor, Salasi, in power after the Cross coup in October 1944. Armenian on one side, Slovak on the other side, and so on and so on. Lithuania is very similar. In general, these nations that make the claim that they arose from a language which protects them from all outside influence turn out to be at least as vulnerable as everyone else. So with us today, not in this audience, but in general, roaming the planet, being interesting, is Vitalis Landsbergis, uh, the representative of the right wing in Lithuanian politics. He is the first generation in his family to speak Lithuanian. Um, the composer, the artist of the nation, Cherlionis, multiple museums around Lithuania, um, he was not the first generation of his family to speak Lithuanian because he did not, in fact, speak Lithuanian. Um, <laughs> he tried to learn it from his wife. The poet of the nation, Sakolauskas, was Polish. The, the, the chief justice of the Supreme Court, um, Romeris, came from a very interesting, mainly Polish family, the Romers, who switched from Polish-Lithuanian identity after falling in love with a Lithuanian milkmaid, um, which I don't know how much time you spent in rural Lithuania, et cetera, but uh, anyway. The <laughs> Augustinus Voldemaris, the most, probably the most interesting um, political figure, a leading nationalist, the prime minister in interwar Lithuania, actually entered politics as a Ukrainian diplomat. And when that didn't work out for him, he changed. Poland. What could possibly go wrong with Poland? The biggest, most central nation, the most coherent national tradition. Mickiewicz, the national poet, as I'm sure many of you know, his most famous poem begins, Lithuania, my fatherland. Mm-hmm. And for good, for very good reason. The city of his birth, the main language was, was, was Yiddish. Um, the people around where he grew up were Belarusian peasants. Where he grew up, in, in the town where he was, there was, a, there was a mosque for Tatars. His father was of Orthodox origin. Very possibly his mother was of Jewish origin. Um, he certainly thought of himself as Polish, but not in the ethnic way that we would ascribe to him. Okay, surely we'd be safe with Józef Pilsudski, the strong man of the interwar period, the founder of modern Poland, who called himself Lithuanian because he was from historical Lithuania, who spoke Belarusian, who spoke fluent Russian because of, because of Siberia, um, and who didn't particularly like Poles at all. Czesław Miłosz, the most famous Polish writer, the Nobel Prize winning poet, called himself Lithuanian for much the same reason, etc. You can go on like this. There was a family of Poles, there was a family called Ivanovsky, where all three of them occupied the city of Vilnius, today's capital of Lithuania, one at the head of the Polish army, one at the head of the Lithuanian army, and the third of them was Belarusian, and he occupied Vilnius with the Wehrmacht, which tells you a bit where we're going. The same exercise, I'm not going to detain you now anymore with this, but the same exercise can be performed with the Czechs, with the Slovaks, with pretty much anybody else you care to name. And I would venture to say the more closely anyone knows so-called ethnic history, the more secrets they tend to hide about these particular things, right, about themselves or about their own nation. So this leads us to a problem, um, a pretty big intellectual problem. These are the people who made national 
history. These are not obscure figures. These are leaders of nations, national poets, people who codified languages, people who organized political movements. Um, they made national history. And then national history returns the favor. National history then encodes them, defines them within parallel national stories. I choose the word parallel very carefully here because parallel lines never meet. Parallel lines, unlike the lines in a family tree, they don't meet, they don't make contact with each other. National historiography has to be self-sufficient. It's intellectually autarkic. It includes people who it needs, it excludes the people it doesn't need, even if those people are brothers. So if the first president of independent Poland happens to have a brother who is simultaneously a minister in independent Lithuania, neither national history is going to, is going to bother to mention that ever again. And then it will slowly be forgotten that they, were, that they were brothers and the nation wins out over the family. Okay, so where does this leave us? What I'd like to say in the remainder of this lecture is it leaves us with a kind of opportunity. It leaves us with a way between the two dominant ways that we have of thinking about the nation and its origins, what brings it about. Um, that where the first way is national history, particular national histories running along in parallel, and the second way is, is theories of nationalism. Now, obviously what I'm going to say is that each of these has its own problems. So national history, how do national histories work? As I mentioned before, national histories work by way of metaphors. And there are two different metaphors, the idea of fatherland and the idea of motherland. It's not the same thing. Um, fatherlands are historical nations. Fatherlands are nations which have political continuities, which have state rights, even if they don't have states. The people who write about fatherlands write about law codes, constitutions, they write about diplomatic history, they write about power. And then there's another tradition, which is the tradition of motherlands. Historians of motherlands write about ethnography, continuities of language, continuities of culture. Their methods are those of cultural and social history, which come from, interestingly enough, Romanticism and Russian populism back in the 19th century. These two frameworks make a big show of opposing each other, both in politics and in intellectual life. In politics, fatherlands means the right of nobles as against peasants. It means the right of the so-called historic nations, like the Poles, against the right of the so-called non-historic nations, like the Ukrainians or the Belarusians. In science, they oppose each other. Um, you, the students of high politics work on interests. They work with documents. Students of, of the motherlands work on traits of society. But in fact, they have a great deal in common. Their model of national creation works along vertical lines. So vertical lines, it can be arranged in parallel. From a fatherland point of view, you're going from the top down to the bottom. You start with the nobles, the notable people, and then you work down to a dissemination of national culture to everyone else. But from the motherland's perspective, which seems at first to be so different, you're starting with continuities of culture and language. You're, keep, you're staying close to the peasants. You're loving the simple people, et cetera, et cetera. And the way that the nation works is that they manage to co-opt and recruit elites, right? But then you end up with the same picture, whether it's top to bottom or bottom to top, you have lines that are going up and down and you end up in the same place. In other words, the problem with all of these national histories, whether they're from, so to speak, the right or the left, if you want to think about it like that, is that they end up with the same kind of determinism. Um, with the motherland's perspective, it's the language, the ethnicity, which is permanent. With the fatherland's perspective, it's the law, it's the state or the aspiration to a state, which is permanent. But either way, you make of time an abstraction. You make time go away. And as soon as you make time go away, because you know what's going to happen next, history also goes away, and thinking goes away, and you have politics instead of scholarship. So, 
Do contemporary theories of nationalism, let's say the ones that have arisen since that golden year, 1983, um, Gellner, Anderson, and the rest, do these contemporary approaches solve this problem? What these approaches have in common is that they privilege the state, um, which is in some ways a very sympathetic approach. They make the state very important. Um, all of the Weberians talk about the state as being unitary and given. Um, Rogers Brubaker talks about the state as being multiple but also being given. Gellner talks about um, a, an imperial state creating multiple nations, but we don't know which ones and we don't really know why. What's suspicious about all of this is the way that by starting with social science rather than history, you smuggle in a category that then becomes a reality. And that category is the state. You know, if, if you just say the state often enough, as everyone in my course now unfortunately knows, if you just say the state often enough, it starts to take on a kind of independent reality. The state, the magical things that the state can do. Isn't it wonderful to have a state that makes you modern? Um, you're starting to believe it. Um, <laughs> the, but the problem is, you know, and, and, and you'll see the problem with this, is that you end up with something which is very much kindred to the, the national teleology. When you're assuming that the state is already there and somehow it's the state which is doing the stuff that brings about nations, mm -hmm. you're not answering the question of where did this state thing come from, which is all the more suspicious when you realize that what the, the, what the nationalists are trying to do is build a state, right? That's what they're trying to do in the first place. So if you assume the existence of the state, you're not only not answering the question, you're, you're, you're putting the cart before the horse. So to make the very obvious point, not, it wasn't just that nations had to be built, it's also that states had to be built, right? The vast majority of nations that we have now didn't exist 150 years ago, but the same is true of the states, including some of the rather functional ones. So if you can grant that the modern state is very powerful, which it is, you can grant that the modern state has a capacity to build and educate and form nations, which it does, but you're still left with the question of how the, na how the state came into being. So what I, what I mean to do, um, if I ever get to writing this book, which, I'm, which I appreciate you're listening to me talk about, is what I want to, what I want to do is, is follow these cases, the kinds of cases that we've, that we've mentioned very briefly, and see where that leads us. Because I think what we might have here is a kind of method. If we actually attend closely to the microhistory of these families who are actually macro families, and families who actually changed the world, families who built states and nations, we might notice things we wouldn't notice otherwise. So for example, just to give you a few examples of where I think might come out, one thing that we would notice is that we would learn that there are causes of modern nationality which are not, so to speak, objective, right? So grant that there are big objective things going on. Grant that literacy matters. Grant that industrialization matters. Those things clearly matter. We know they mattered, and, and people in the late 19th century knew they mattered too. The, the realization that, nation, that nationalism, that national identity, that mass politics were coming is not something that we had to figure out in the 21st century. People knew it at the time. In fact, this is essential to the argument I'm trying to make. People knew that the nation was coming but they didn't know which one. And that's where things get interesting, right? Because nationalism isn't like liberalism or socialism, where you think you can see the future and the future is uniform, right? The future is straightforward, the future is universal. If you know that the nation is coming, then you're faced with a problem. Okay, the nation is coming. You could understand that in 1880 or in 1890 and 1900, and many intelligent people did, but which ones are coming? You don't know. 
And so you're placing a bet by joining one rather than the other. And if you think that you're not a better, but you're the horse, I'm just taking this metaphor way too far now, but if you think you're the horse, right, you're, you're actually moving one nation rather than another. You're not just betting on one, you're, you're, you're riding on one. You're, you're assigning your own life to this nation because you do get to choose. But once you choose, and this is the tragic part of it a little bit, once you choose, you don't get to unchoose. Right? You choose, if you try to unchoose, bad things will happen to you. So there is a kind of tragic element to this as well. So what I would think that this would help us to do is to turn, turn attention to some of the subjective causes of nationality, of the nations that we do have, which are things like, interestingly enough, things like sibling rivalry, <laughs> love affairs, um, rebellions, and the strivings of families themselves to endure. Family history isn't interesting just because families are small and cuddly and we can all identify with them because we all have them, right? Family history is interesting because families are a power in the world, right? Anyone who knows anything about early modern history will understand the claim that I'm making. And early modern history, in this part of the world anyway, lasts well into the 20th century. Families are a power, not all of them, but some of them. And families that have power and know that nations are coming ask themselves, how do we adapt? And the traditional thing that families do when situations change is they send one brother one way, right, to the priesthood, one brother the other way, to the military, right, anyone who's from Pakistan. It, these things, these kinds of things are clear. In the in world of nations, you could send one brother to the Poles, and you could send one brother to the Ukrainians, and then you could see how it was all going to turn out. And that is what some of these mothers, it was usually mothers who thought this way, this is what some of these mothers actually did. Okay, so let me give you an example of this, and then we'll roll to a close. The example that I wanted to mention um, is one to which I alluded at the very beginning, the patron of Wilhelm, this Ukrainian churchman whose name was Andrei Sheptitsky. Andrei Sheptitsky um, uh, was Ukrainian. If anyone has the, can make a claim to be the founder of modern Ukrainian nationality, it's probably him. He was a metropolitan of the Greek Catholic Church at a crucial moment. He, had a, he, he came from an interestingly Baroque and rather reactionary Polish aristocratic family. Um, his mother, Zofia, uh, would ride for miles in the snow in her sleigh in order to go to the, to the, 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 the proper liturgy in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, that, that she had serfs to pull her, of course, helps. You know, it's, 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 very, it's much easier to be particular in your observation if you have serfs to pull you. Um, how does anyone here know about that? <laughs> um, who here has serfs? Uh, so Zofia was an extraordinarily um, conservative Catholic and, of course, a Pole. Now, she, she has a couple of close counselors who are Jesuits. And one of these Jesuits whispers something in her ear, which, even though it's a stereotype, is the kind of thing that Jesuits actually do if you are rich and fervent and if you have very smart sons, which she did. And what this Jesuit whispered in her ear was, you know, we have a plan for Russia. The Jesuits still have this plan, by the way. I don't think I'm letting the cat out of the bag. <laughs> we have a plan for Russia. And that plan is, we think we can convert them. Uh, and the way we're going to do it is we're going to take the Greek Catholic Church, which, just so you know, is somewhere, it's, it's Roman Catholic in institution, but it's Eastern in liturgy uh, and, and, uh, and, and behavior. We're going to take this Greek Catholic Church and we're going to use it as a vehicle to convert all of the Russias. It's a great, it's a great plan. I mean, there's, it, it's, it's still the only plan, as far as I know. Um, it, no, it's going, this is another, it's going, it's going on. Putin's not wrong about everything. You know. um, <laughs> just most things. Um, so, so um, 
now I'm getting myself distracted because <laughs> I'm on, like I'm now working back to the transvestite part of the talk, and like this is not the transvestite part of the talk. Um, so, uh, so, 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 she, so the, her Jesuit confessor whispers this into her ear, and he has a plan, and the plan is for her oldest son, who at that time is called Roman, Roman Cheptitsky. Um, Roman Cheptitsky at the time is, is a young Catholic thinking of studying law and so on. And the project is we're going to take your talented young son, we're going to make him, we're going to turn him from a Pole into Ukrainian, from a Roman Catholic into a Greek Catholic. He's going to transform and modernize and lead a modern, attractive Greek Catholic church. Mm -hmm. And that will then attract other Ukrainians and other East Slavs and Russians. And this is all going to work out very well. Zofia, the mother, resists this, of course, initially. She believes that the Greek Catholic Church, I'm using her words, is a bottomless abyss of greed and superstition. Um, her first reaction to the idea of conversion um, is that a hissing serpent raised its head to seize my child and draw him into the abyss of its filth. Um, in class terms, she was afraid of his peasantization, which is a word that you have in Polish, Swopnienca. Um, she was afraid of his peasantization. But her, her confessor responds to this in an interesting way. Um, he says, never, at worst he will be a martyr. <laughs> and I could wish nothing better for him or for you. And that, of course, is the argument that works. We're dealing with, we're dealing with believing people. So this is a persuasive reply. Um, uh, Roman does in fact become uh, Andrei. He does switch from being Sheptitsky to Sheptitsky. He does switch from being uh, a Pole to Ukrainian. Um, he goes to Rome to study. Uh, and, he, and his mother naturally visits him there. And he always greets her with flowers. And she, she, she writes back to her friends, um, I promise this is going to be the only Freudian moment in this talk about family history. She writes back to her friends, he received me like a man would receive his fiancée, only better. <laughs> so while the two of them were, were in Rome, Zofia, who was that kind of woman, talked her way into a papal interview where the Pope then, who was Leon XII at the time, explained this scheme for Russia again and her enthusiasm was confirmed and Andrei was rebaptized and so on. Now, Andrei, once he becomes a Greek Catholic priest, rises very quickly, bishop, metropolitan, and he does make the church the national organization that it is today. He had a younger brother. The younger brother was called Stanislav. The younger brother tried to please the father, who was feeling much left out, as you can imagine, by all of this. He tries to please his father by becoming a soldier. Um, he joins the Austrian Military Academy rather than the priesthood. He also has a meteoric career. He's military attaché um, to the Russian Empire during the Russo-Japanese War, which he observes extremely interestingly. Then he goes to Rome like his brother, but to follow Italian politics, then combat in the First World War. Um, and then he's the Austrian military governor, very briefly, of Poland. At the end of the war, uh, when Austria comes to an end, Stanislav, the younger brother, accepts a place in the Polish general staff and becomes chief of staff. And then, when, when you can see now what's going to happen, when Poland and Ukraine are fighting themselves for, for independence, Stanislav plans, literally writes the battle plans which are used to destroy the Ukrainian state, while Andrei is in Canada trying to raise money for it. Um, Zofia didn't live to see all of this. She died in 1904. Um, Andrei continued in what then became southeastern Poland as a Ukrainian national leader. Stanislav remained a Polish general in the 20s and 30s. In the Second World War, 
when the German army marched east um, another time, um, Andre did some rather extraordinary things. He first believed that the Germans were going to liberate Ukraine from what was then a Soviet occupation. Then when he understood what, Soviet occupa what German occupation was going to be, he did some things which, to my knowledge, no other churchman and pr probably nobody else really did. He wrote uh, a letter to Himmler protesting the events that we call the Holocaust. Um, he then wrote a, a, a letter to be read in all the parishes around the biblical commandment not to kill, which was very clearly designed to prevent Ukrainians from taking part in the murder of non-Ukrainians, in, including, including Jews. And he and his brother, his other younger brother, Clementi, um, used the used the facility uh, the facilities of the Greek Catholic Cathedral in Lviv uh, to shelter at least a hundred Jews. Um, one of whom has since become the chaplain of the Israeli army, another of whom has since become the foreign minister of Poland, um, the children of whom have been in my have been in my classes, my the grandchildren I should say have been in my classes. So there was this other brother, Clementi. He was also Ukrainian. And then there was another brother who was also Polish. Um, at the end of the war, and now we are moving into a different historical territory, as you feel, I'm sure. At the end of the war, by the end of the war, of the five brothers, two had been killed by the Gestapo, and two had been killed by the NKVD, mm. um, the, the Soviet secret state police. So now we are right in the thick of, of how the Second World War turns out in Eastern Europe. And that's the first conclusion that I want to leave you with, a kind of historical corrective. Um, when you consider the history of Eastern Europe from the point of view of the Second World War, it's very hard to resist the categories of ethnicity. We don't say blood, um, but we do say ethnicity. Uh, it's very hard to resist the way that Hitler, and in some measure Stalin also, understood the political geography of the places that they dominated. That these territories were in fact inhabited by something called ethnicities, which you could screen, separate, which you could identify, which you could move around, which, which you could destroy. One can oppose, as presumably most of us do, the aspiration of screening, separating them, exterminating them, moving them around. But it's actually rather hard to resist the category of ethnicity. What, I'd want, what I would want to suggest, and not just on the basis of what I've, I've said thus far, is that the category of ethnicity is itself extraordinarily suspect. The category of ethnicity is a result of a great deal of work to build national communities. It didn't, it didn't itself exist out there in the world doing any of the work. It's the result. It's not the cause. But in our minds, precisely because of the way the Second World War happened in Eastern Europe, because so much action and so much suffering occurred as a result of the idea of race, it's very hard for us to completely liberate ourselves of this idea. And I think that's why, if the argument that I'm making now sounds strange, why it does, because we are still to a great extent um, seeing Eastern Europe through the prism of the colonial prism, really, of, of its conquerors. So what I'm trying to suggest is that nationalism as politics is not just a kind of historical reality, it's an example of our own epistemic problems with the history of a great part of the continent. The second conclusion that I want to suggest is that this shows, um, and I'm sure you've already gathered this, so I'll be brief, but this shows that the way that nations come about has to do, of course, with big historical processes that we can track, 
but it also has to do with personal decisions. It has to do with personal decisions sometimes which don't actually have anything to do with the nation, which have to do with something else entirely. When, when Roman Szeptycki agreed to become a, a Greek Catholic priest, it had to do with saving souls. That's what he told himself. He was a deep believer. He believed that he would save more souls as a Ukrainian pastor than he would as a Polish one. And you know, for all we know, he was right. People had motivations which are not necessarily national. They could be political without being national. And here is where one begins to feel, I hope, the connection to the present day. Because in some parts of Eastern Europe, not least in Ukraine, these things are still in play. And people are still making decisions about Ukrainian nationality that are not based upon anything so childish as ethnicity, right? Yanukovych is essentially an orphan whose origins are in Belarus, right? And nevertheless, he's making a decisive political turn towards recognizing the existence of, so to speak, his own nation and tilting it in one way rather than another. It's a political decision. It has nothing to do with ethnicity. And it is, you know, the preoccupation of many people in the European Union right now. It's the subject of the Vilnius Summit, which is coming up and so forth. So we're still living with this now. And the final point that I want to leave you with is that we'll continue to live with it. In some sense, the history of nationality properly understood um, helps us to see a larger point about history itself. Namely that the history of, of nationality and history of politics in general is not so much a history that's buried in the past. It carries with it um, in its subject, in its subjects and these people, it carries inside itself a vision of the future. Now, with liberals and socialists, this has always been easy to see. Liberals and socialists always, we, we understand they thought they knew what the future was going to be. With nationalists, it's a little bit harder because nationalism throws up all this chuff. It throws up all this dust. It has these arguments about how a nation has to come to be because of what happened in the past. Now, the people who made these arguments, of course, are people who themselves, in the present, converted from other nationalities in order to write in a foreign language to make these arguments, right? So their very lives disprove the case that they then make so persuasively to us, right? Um, so the point is that even nationalism, like other political ideas, is, has to be understood as an idea about the future. Or if you like, if we're trying to, recognize, to, to reconcile the big with the small, the individual with the general, um, it's a way to reconcile, um, like many political ideas are, what the Germans call Zeitalter with Menschenalter, with your own experience of time, Menschenalter, with the experience of time of everyone in general, Zeitalter, with your epoch. Nationalism is a way of, national identity is a way of trying to make your own life make sense within the future that you think is coming. Choosing a nation, identifying a nation, was not actually a commitment to that national past. It was a commitment to a future which you thought might be coming and which you thought you might be able to push a little bit along the way. So this is a view about nationalism and, and national identity, which I hope helps us to see nation building as a kind of politics, which I hope helps us to see it as legitimate um, in its sophistication. That is to say, not a kind of inchoate or atavistic reaction to more modern ways of seeing the world, but itself an acceptance that modernity was coming and a sophisticated acceptance because it understood that if modernity is coming, it's up to us how we're going to divide it up. It's going to be up to us which nations are going to come. That's something which these intelligent people in the late 19th century understood. And I think it's something that if we understood, we would understand them better and also our whole national epic, which continues, I think we would understand that better as well. Thank you very much.
Thank you. Thank you very much, Tim. Wonderfully erudite and provocative at the same at the same time. The kind of inaugural lecture for Philippe Romontier that we that we want to have. It was a, a wonderful lecture. Now, before I turn over to the Lithuanians and the pseudo poles and the uh, and the Ukrainians of various sorts, I'm sure we have in the audience tonight. Not to mention the Bulgarians and the Croats. Um, to start questioning you on your uh, definition of themselves and others. I wanted to ask a question that really has much to do with theory, or at least the way you started on a discussion of that um, with regard to the role of the state as part of a nationalist project. And I'm coming at this from outside of Europe primarily uh, from, from, from the Asian experience thinking for instance about the work of your Yale colleague Jim Scott um, in, well, in political science or anthropology if you like um, where in parts of Southeast Asia national identity is not even about establishing some full form of, of ethnicity it is simply about modernization projects it can be about dams, it can be about particular forms of rice and rice growing. Uh, this is how you identify nationally. And, and what then happens, of course, is that one of these groups, the way Jim describes it, get the upper hand and the others have to flee. And they run away from, from state authority. They become the ones whose main project is not to be governed. Now, that's Jim's sort of rather anarchist take on this which I, to quite some extent, agree with. But I was wondering if you see any parallels to this on the East European frontiers that you've been looking at. Nation as modernity, as specific projects for development, that this defines where you take a stand? So, yeah, so th th there are things about that interpretation which I find sympathetic and things which I don't find sympathetic, but the part that you, you've stressed is the part that I do find sympathetic. And it's actually, it's very helpful, but it helps us to understand how national life could seem like a legitimate project in an era where you couldn't take the state for granted. So one of the things which nationally conscious people try to do is they try to build states. But everyone knows that's not easy. Everyone knows you need a great deal of luck. Right? It's not actually an easy thing to plan for in Warsaw or Krakow or Ljubljana in, 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 in 1900. You can't really expect that, okay, in 14 years there's going to be this war, and in this war every single empire in a different way is going to lose, and there are going to be a bunch of new nation states. You, it, and you realize it's beyond your power. I mean, many of these people, interestingly, had revolutionary pasts, or for that matter, anarchist pasts, bomb-throwing pasts, where they thought, okay, with a, with a simple gesture, with courage, with self-sacrifice, you can radically transform politics. That's what a lot of these very people thought in the 1860s and 1870s, and they got over it. Um, and they realized that they had to build some kind of national community. And interestingly, the split between the people who were building a community which they regarded as socialist and the people or working class and the people who were building a community they regarded as national is not as distinct as one would think. There was a lot of crossover between one and the other. In both cases, I mean, in practice for most of the socialists as well, despite all the international rhetoric, internationalist rhetoric, the socialists were operating generally in one language and they were generally bringing light to one people. German socialists were 
among, among the most enthusiastic of the, of the German civilizers of the late 19th century and early 20th century, despite the fact, or indeed because of the fact, that they themselves were generally of Jewish origin themselves. Mm. So these two, these two ideas of creating community um, actually come back to the same thing. And it's the anticipation of some future dramatic event where a state's going to be created. For the socialists, you think there's a revolution. Mm. And your intellectual problem is that you don't know how to reconcile all this activity that you're doing with creating that revolution. And the sort of problem that socialists have, you know, as they get into middle age, as they realize, okay, I've done a wonderful job organizing, you know, the Bavarian Socialist Soccer League, but how does this actually bring us to revolution? And the nationalists have the same problem. Um, you know, I've done a wonderful job organizing the peasant literary circle of Katowice region, but what comes next after that? And so uh, this is all by way of a green. National projects, I mean, it, it, in the mid-19th century, 1860s, 1870s, were much more dramatically mm. about we can alter history at a blow. Mm. But in the period I'm talking about, people understood it wasn't so much like that. It was a kind of project to create institutions. And then those institutions would be there for you when you had the opportunity. Mm. Excellent. Let's take a few questions from, from the audience. Is it okay, Tim, if we take two, two at a time? Yeah, 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 yeah of course. My, my only re my request is that you identify yourself and, and that you ask your question as a question. That's Indeed. The and preferably a, a, brief, uh, a brief question. Gagan, let's start to the back. Thank you, Professor Snyder. Very quickly, very briefly, uh, would you agree with the statement that your approach both is and has to be a top-down approach to the subject you're, you're examining? And I mean that in a very particular sense. You're unpacking, disaggregating these categories, uh, such as nation, by going to the individual level. But these are individuals who have choice. And I would imagine these individuals who have choice are well, all the examples you gave, they're very elite individuals, they're, they're nobles, they're aristocrats, which suggests that your approach is top-down and indeed has to be top-down. Would you agree with that statement? Uh, Thanks. But, uh, could we take one more question, yeah. Tim? Is that right? Yeah. Ed, a very brief one, because you get to ask a question over dinner or so. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Edward Lucas, not a Habsburg. Um, I, I just <laughs> about, about lang language here, because uh, Russia, Russia has a great advantage. You can say either Russianin or Ruski, and to distinguish between the sort of the putative ethnos and the putative demos. And it seems to me that the, um, in, in, in almost every other so-called East European language, we don't have that. It sort of strangulates the debate. It's very hard to um, discuss this um, without having um, words for the, for the, for the ca categories you're trying to, try, trying to uh, create. And I wonder what the um, people you just um, discussed in your lecture would have actually used words to, to describe themselves, because they would have presumably said, I'm not ethnic Polish, but I am Polish. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how they would say that in Polish. Mm -hmm. okay. Two good interpretative questions to start with. Tim. So, with, with language, um, the, the, the problem in a way only appears as a problem in retrospect because since you know, Polski didn't mean ethnically Polish in the 19th century, it, 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 you didn't have to worry about the problem. It, insofar as you were referring to Polish tradition, you were referring to something which was elite, and, and this gets towards this question, which was elite and, and we would say multicultural. So the problem didn't really arise, so to speak, until it arose. And when it did arise, then you're right, then things got very complicated. And Polish makes a distinction, for example, between Narodowi and Narodowoszczowi, which sound very much like they must be similar, but there's a fundamental distinction where Narodowi means of the nation in the sense of the folk, mm. where Narodowoszczowi means having to do with 
with national minorities having to do with the recognition that the world consists of many nations, right? So the, yeah, I mean, the, the, it does get solved in different languages, different ways, but never elegantly. You're, you're right about that. On the top-down question, um, the, the nice thing about being the speaker is whenever, when, if you ask, like, would you agree, I, can, I don't have to say yes or no. I, I can say yes and no. I, I think that, let me, tell you, let me give you, let me, let, me, let me come at this from a, from a writerly perspective and then from an analytical perspective. I have lots of cases like this of people who, li who didn't matter. I have dozens of cases of people who didn't matter, who were in families where for different reasons they made these kinds of choices. And the reasons that they made these kinds of choices were often quite recognizably similar to these, like you fell in love with a milkmaid, there was sibling rivalry, whatever. That happens among people who didn't make the nations too. But the reason that I'm writing the book the way I'm writing it is that um, the obvious objection to the book, to the project, is the opposite of yours. The obvious objection is, okay, Snyder, there were these people, mm. but they're just a bunch of people with funny names like Ski, and they didn't matter anyway, right? So if I write a social history, I mean, a, a classical social history of a village where, and there are such villages, and you could, you could do it, of places where people were of one group and broke into three nations over the course of a generation. There are villages like that. There are lots of them, mm. actually. But if I did that, the, I think the response would be, oh, well, okay, fine, that's one more piece of, you know, East European Orientalia, you know, who cares? Um, and so, I, so I, I, I decided that as a matter of method, I would fall into your trap um, rather than that trap and only choose people who mattered because that way I can always fall back onto the position, th this process matters because these individuals matter. You can't, so that's a kind of fallback. But I have an analytical answer as well. Um, it is the case that, as I, as I claimed at the beginning, um, that you can go from Habsburg all the way down to the bottom. And that's the flourish that I would end the book with. These kinds of things happen at every scale. It isn't just elites. Mm. So the method that I'm using is indeed um, a kind of top-down method, although here again, it's a hybrid, because what I want to do is a social history of elites, right? So it's not a diplomatic history or a legal history of elites, which is what the Fatherland's approach does, mm. and it's not a social history of peasants or a social history of workers. It's a social history of elites. So I'm trying to bring those two things together. But then I do think once you do that, then actually your eyes are open to the revelation that in dra dramatic circumstances, people in the village actually ended up doing very often the same kinds of thing. The people who are Polish, you know, Poles and Ukrainians in Galicia today, um, their story is often very similar. The other thing about this, and I'm sure you've already, you've already thought of this, the other thing about this is you have to be able to document it. And the thing about families like this also is they leave a trace. They leave a trace where you can actually tell the stories with richness. I have dozens of cases of people who don't matter. They're, it's very hard to write a chapter where you can get into some kind of argument with those cases. So it's a social history of elites. I'm trying, I'm trying to bring together these sort of two dominant ways of thinking about the nation. You know, that it's about everyone or it's only about the leader. I'm trying to bring that together in this project. Questions upstairs? Anyone who? Goodness, you're a quiet assembly up there. One in the middle. Um, Could you wait for the microphone, please? Yeah. Um, good evening, sir. My name is Huang. I'm from Vietnam. I'm a third year international relations and history student here. I thought we had to have a Vietnamese when it came to questions of nationalism. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, sir. Um, well, uh, you, you already asked a very important question about Southeast Asia, so I, I would just skip that. But in terms of Eastern European history around, around this time, I mean, obviously there was a lot of uh, movement of borders. 
And you know, a lot of these borders, of course, throughout the 20th century were drawn uh, on very strategic considerations, uh, economic considerations as well, um, like the Odenese line and the moving of the Polish uh, Soviet borders and all that. Um, so of course, taking up the, the strand that you were talking about, to what extent you know, do many of these families yeah, you know, uh, many many of these people just not really have that much of a choice, but it's all a strategic and you know economic uh, drawing of the map that ultimately decides. Hmm. They end up within units over which they have very little control in terms of the size or borders thereof. Yeah, we got a question right over there. Please, sir. Hi. Uh, my name is Bohdan Tupin. I'm a Ukrainian journalist, but uh, I have a question about uh, uh, this country, well, England and English nation. Uh, do you think that uh, English nation building is over? And can, for example, um, independence of Scotland restart the nation building process for England? Of course, the Ukrainian had to ask about England. No, it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't surprise me. Okay, why don't you take those two okay. so quickly. I'm, I'm going to answer the English one completely off the cuff. I mean, just as, a, you know, as an analytically informed observer rather than someone who knows anything about England. I, I think, you know, as, as, those, as all of you will understand having listened to this lecture, I think that the, there, is, there is an obvious dialectic between what we might think of as colonialism or empire and nation. It's very hard to separate those two things in all, at all kinds of different levels. And the, the experience of, of nation building for most people is in some sense anti-imperial. And the people who get to dodge nation building are the ones who, are, who can huddle close to the metropole. The, closest you could, the closer you can huddle the metropole, you know, whether that metropole is Petersburg or London, the, the longer you can dodge this question and be, and be vague about it. So one of the corollaries of the imperial part of history, which is most of the modern part, is that national questions get pushed out away from cities and centers and, and towards heartlands and kind of second-rate metropoles. One of the corollaries of the decolonial period of history is that national questions then start rolling back towards, towards the center. So uh, yeah, I mean, my short answer is yes, that national questions are not ever answered. And insofar as imperial history is always on the move, then national history is going to be on the move as well. So of course, I think if Scotland leaves, the only thing you can be sure is that English identity will change. How it will change and who will, and who will have the ideas that will change it, that can't be predicted. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure it would be. Um, on the question of borders, so even here, there you are, even here, um, this, this goes to what I was speaking to about the state. Borders aren't permanent. So there's a fix, one of the fixtures of the kind of state-centered um, modernist literature that I'm working against is that the, there's the state and then the state has certain institutions like borders which have an almost magical power. They, they, the borders are just there and then we re, then the borders create borderlands and we react to them. I mean, it goes without saying that in the 19th century, borders were pretty porous. But beyond that, um, and, and going, trying to go along with my conclusion that these people were sophisticated, people anticipated that borders were going to change, and their bets had to do with the fact they thought borders were going to change, right? So Wilhelm's father thinks either the rest of Ukraine is going to join Galicia, this Habsburg territory, or the Habsburg monarchy is going to fall apart and the Habsburg Ukrainian territories are going to end up with those. But either way, he thinks the border is going to change. His bet on a Polish kingdom is a bet that borders are going to change. 
Um, his bet on the Ukrainian kingdom, Wilhelm's, I'm sorry, is a bet that borders are going to change. All these bets are bets on borders changing. People are looking to the future and thinking borders are going to change. And then the other thing I want to say about borders, borders in national histories always have to figure as oppressive, you know, along the way that you say. Mm. And sometimes they are, of course. I mean, I don't want to overstate my case. Sometimes they are. States can reach a certain level of maturity where they really are able to train up their people. It happens. But um, for, for long periods of time, borders can also be helpful to national movements. This is sort of one, of my, one of my great heresies, which I'm pretty sure is right. If you are if you're a na if you are a nation without a state, it's actually good to be divided up among as many states as possible. The worst fate is to be entirely within one state. If you're entirely within one state, then you don't have any brethren who are going to help you, right? Because just mathematically, if we're in the same nation and there's a border between us, one of us is going to be better off than the other. <laughs> Uh, one of us can help the other out. One of us can smuggle books in. Or in desperation, you can flee across the border to me. You know, that's the mm. common story. That's the Ukrainian story, by the way. Ukraine is between the Habsburgs and the Russian Empire. That helps. Poland is divided between three empires. And by no coincidence, it's the Polish national movement which is the most mature and the most complex. right? And then Belarus, the most problematic. Why is it problem most problematic? Because all the Belarusians are in one empire, the, the Russian Empire. So in the period that I'm talking about, actually being separated across borders can be fruitful. Not in a way that you can later celebrate, right, as a national historian. It's one of the many things that national history can't talk about. But it is, I think it is actually the case. Now, but I don't want to push this constructivist thing, you know, all the, all the way to the wall. Obviously, you're right. At a certain point, states do manage to have mature border regimes to control things, to train up their citizens in terms of identity. You do reach that point. What I'm trying to do in a way is historicize that point, to note that that happens at, a, at some point, but a lot of other things happen before you get there. Other questions? We got one right at the back. Let's start with that one. Hi, thank you. Case uh, here. I'm a PhD student here at the LSE. Um, my question is, I mean, you already mentioned that Eastern Europe, it's a region of empires. And perhaps we can think of this as the, these, the nationalisms that start developing as, as being in competition with perhaps something else, an, uh, an effort to create an imperial identity around mm. the institutions of the Habsburg Empire, uh, the Ottoman Empire. We can think of, for example, of the Soviet attempt to create a genuine Soviet nationalism that exceeds Russian or Ukrainian and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. And my question is, why do the nationalists win? Why do these sort of super nationalist um, identities never work? Is it something about the nation that makes it more appealing than the state that you already have? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, I, I think that's a, that's a wonderful, it's a wonderful historical could we, could we do question. Yeah, sorry, sorry. One sorry. more, just before we, before we run out. It is a wonderful question. I was just thinking about counterexamples. Of course, you think about it in a particular way, you could, of course, always search the United States, but then you could search the United States for most things. There was another question right there. Yes, sir. Hi, I'm Jonathan Williams. Um, I'm just wondering if your theories, how they interact with fascism and the, the sort of fascist disaster of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. We had one up there. I'll give you a last chance on the balcony to ask a question. Please, yeah, show your hand and get the microphone to your right. No, no, that one, that one first. Yeah, you, please. 
Oh, sir, Przemysław Maholak, I'm a London student from Poland, and uh, sorry for my poor language. But can we say, can we call the people who are, um, who, who's leading, who's, uh, who's do, who activities uh, were, do, were leaden by the national thinking, but there was before the na uh, nations which we understood as today, between, uh, for example, in 12th century, that were people who were, I can, we think that they are, what they did was, uh, um, uh, was the same like, uh, I don't know, the best politician should do, but it was without the nations in our uh, nowadays understanding. Thank you. Tim, do you want to handle us? So uh, uh, let me try to take them in reverse order. I, I'm, I'm not, it's not your language, but I'm not sure I understand what the, what the question is. So wh what about the 12th century? Can I speak in Polish? Okay. Yeah. So it's it's, a, it's another question about naming. It's very hard to talk about the medieval East European states. It's not just an East European issue because you do have this really interesting period in East European history um, of the competition between the Byzantine, the Holy Roman empires, and the emergence of what are unquestionably states with some kind of national identity. I mean, it emerges in a in a really interesting cauldron between Eastern and Western Christianity. Everybody, including the Poles, goes east, goes west. There's a very interesting geopolitics of, of the conversion to Christianity, where you're converting to Christianity in a way that you think is going to be geopolitically most helpful for you. It's, it's all very interesting, and you're right. There's no question that in the courts of the Bohemians or in the Polish courts, you have something which is unmistakably a kind of national thought. You have national stereotypes about other peoples, even as you're marrying into their families. All these things exist. And, and it, I think it's, it's perfectly reasonable to refer to those as, as, a, as, a, as, as national states, provided that you're, you're aware that this is not the modern period. I mean, the problem comes in with, our, with the po poverty of our vocabulary, because we do need a notion which, of, of a modern nation which involves the aspiration to believe that, in some sense, the king is like the peasant. Right? I mean, it's an illusion. They're different in every way, but the, 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 the animating illusion of modernity is that the king is like the peasant, or modern nationals in any way. Um, and, and you don't have that. In, you simply don't have anything like that. And you don't have the aspiration to create this kind of sophisticated state either. In the, in the, earlier in the, in the early modern medieval periods, the king works by way of dealing with other groups of notables. In modernity, um, the king, or even if it is a king, the king or the head of state deals with the individual citizen. And the idea is the individual citizen is going to imbibe a notion of the nation which is going to make him part of the state. It's a very, very different model and, and getting one from one to the other is incredibly interesting. So I, I, I'm, only, I'm really only acknowledging the problem that you say because I wouldn't want to dismiss the, the national element of medieval history. It's clearly there, but it's all, it doesn't involve the kinds of it doesn't involve the aspiration to bureaucracy and to individuality that you get in, in the modern period. That's as good as I can do with that, I'm afraid. Um, on the question of fascism, I mean, it's a, it's a deep question. It depends a little bit how you mean it, and it, it helps us to, to think about what nationalism was and what fascism was and where you draw the lines. Um, and you know, you, the answer really depends on where you draw the line. So 
fascists were like this. I mean, they may have been more like this than other people, right? Um, I mean, where, what was Hitler? Um, how far back did his German roots go? Um, the, 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 the Ukrainian nationalists, you know, when they didn't have Jewish, when the Ukrainian fascists, when they didn't have Jewish girlfriends, you know, had Slovene mothers um, or Croatian mothers. Uh, the Hungarian fascists I already mentioned, um, Swabian, Armenian, you name it. So at, at, at this level, fascism looks like nationalism, um, it looks like an element of nationalism. I think, um, the, and, and, and it interests so also Wilhelm, you know, just to take an example, Wilhelm who went through kind of every phase possible in terms of politics and sexuality and everything else, um, he had a fascist phase in, after, he got, after this uh, financial and sex scandal in Paris, after he got kicked out of Austria, he arrived right at the time of the Anschluss and he decided for a while that he was a fascist um, and therefore a German. But the interesting thing about his fascism, and I think that this is actually, again, it seems weird, but it's representative, he was a kind of reciprocal fascist, right? So you could be a Ukrainian fascist, or you could be a German fascist, you could also be an Italian fascist, and these kind of fascists can talk to each other. Where fascism and national socialism, I think, are rather different, mm. is that national socialism can't have that reciprocity. You can't say, I'm a race, you're a race, you know, let's talk about it. National socialism has to say, um, I'm a race, therefore we're in a fatal competition um, over territory. And, and it then depends upon what I take to be a much more abstract and mythicized notion of human communities, one where the definition of a human community is that it struggles. I don't see that in, I see nationalism blurring towards that with fascism. I see, I see national socialism as being something which is not only at an extreme, but which might be, might be quite different. Okay, what's the question that I'm, that I'm missing here? Hmm. Oh, right, so they don't always lose. I mean, here I'm with Arne. They don't always lose. When they win, it's like everything. When they win, you forget that there was ever a contest, hmm. right? I mean, what's Canada? I mean, Canada's a wonderfully, not to mention the United States, right? Um, Canada's a wonder, Canada, come on, Canada's a wonderful place. And Canada isn't, it, you know, with all the appropriate caveats and so on, it's, it, it, it requires all kinds of different sorts of loyalties. And I would argue that most states that you can also make the argument a different way. You can say that the nation itself is a multinational identity. When it succeeds, when it fails, it's some tiny ethnicity, right? But when it succeeds, it's a big, grandiose, generous political project. Right, and the, the, there is no such thing as a civic nation, you know, which opens its doors, and an ethnic nation which doesn't. It's actually a big blurry spectrum, and one of the ways that nations can become bigger, um, and this is again a difference between national socialism and everything else, you don't just become bigger by killing other people and, and propagating. You become bigger because you can accept other people in, and the, and this is the, this is the story of, of of some of these East European nationalities as well. The Hungarian nation, for example, when it was doing really well in the late 19th century, it was because it was assimilating Jews, Slovaks, and Germans just right and left, especially in Budapest. The Polish nation, when it was successful, was also assimilating, and you can see the moment where it pol the, pol the Polish nation breaks down is the moment where it loses its assimilatory power. You know, somewhere in the late 19th, early 20th centuries. So even nations, so nations are actually the kind of multinational project that you're talking about when they're big and successful, I would argue. And then after they're successful, you don't really ask where they came from. You know, and, and so, but I don't want to dodge the question. It's true that um, in, in principally, 
the Soviet Union, like the Habsburg monarchy, was aiming for a loyalty which was explicitly higher than the, nation, than the national. And what it was trying to do, and here I think is where the failure comes, it's trying to accept that national commitments are real in the world, but sublimate them to some higher political loyalty. So the Habsburgs didn't deny that there were nations. On the contrary, they were constantly dealing with nations, making compromises with nations, having parades with nations. Um, they celebrated the nation in a certain kind of anthropological way which was not entirely different from how the Soviet Union celebrated the nation. Um, they, they're real, they matter, we accept that they're real, but their whole historical purpose is to, raise, is to raise up people who are going to be sufficiently sophisticated and modern to understand the socialist project. I mean, that's the Kornizatia, that's the idea of the 1920s, that nations are real, and, and in fact, they're even necessary to get people from, um, one, you know, from nomadic life into feudal life or something like this. But we're going to push that process forward and we're going to have this higher level. Why why does it never work out or why does it sometimes not work out? I think part of it has to do with um, the way that the nation can work both as past and future, which I mean, I was trying to emphasize that at the back, that at the end, that the nation has an appeal which goes back both backwards and forwards and big ambitious projects like the US and the Soviet Union are only good at going forwards. They're very bad at going backwards. Um, but another part of it also is just, and this, is, this goes back a bit to, to, to Professor Westhouse's question about Jim Scott. A lot of it, I think, is just a dumb matter of scale. Hmm. That, that historical periods have scales that they work well at, and the, mo the modern period has a scale which is bigger than the village, hmm. bigger than the individual, but smaller than the Soviet Union. You know, something like that. <laughs> um, I realize that's very. You know, that's a very. It seems like a very. Um, a very silly thing to say, but I think there's something in it. I think that uh, I, I, I think that the, the the national the reason why national one of the reasons why national politics turned out to be successful is that people were looking for impersonal idea and personal connections that could feel personal, which is what a nation is. You know, when I go to a Red Sox game and I know no one there, mm -hmm. nevertheless, it's a Red Sox nation. Um, I'm not getting the response from this that I would. <laughs> um, but the, the, but, but there's, you know, this imagined community, which can be, can be national. That, that, is, um, that, I, that, that turns out to be a matter of scale. And it worked, out, it worked itself out only in practice. In the late 19th century, people thought the scale was going to be the globe. Liberals and socialists thought the scales, but that turned out not to be quite right. And then there were other people, anarchists, peasantists, and so on, who thought the scale was going to be the village or, or the region, and that turned out not to be quite right as well. So I think there is some brutal way in which different global economic regimes enforce some kind of scale. And I think that has to do with it as well. But it's not, that's not something that we can ever really internalize. But I think that has something to do with it. Now, Tim will be um, signing copies of his uh, most recent book, Bloodlands. It's in sale, on sale in, uh, in front of the theater, so if you want to pick up a copy, buy it out there at a much reduced price, I hope. Um, and then you can come back in here and Tim will sign a reasonable number of them for you. Uh, Tim, I want to thank you very much on behalf of all of us, on behalf of LSE Ideas. A, a wonderful inaugural lecture. I think we all learned a great deal tonight. We have more questions. We'll be able to ask those of Professor Snyder during the remaining three lectures in this series. So I welcome all of you to that lecture. Thank you very much, Tim, on behalf of all of us. <laughs>